Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 and we are live again. I need one of those clackers, don't I, that go... Like they do in the movies. Boom, yeah. So, But obviously you have to go like 5, 4... Malbit. Yeah, no one can actually see me like do the three, two, one with my hands though. That's not how podcasts work. It's not. It's not. Well, unless you YouTube it all. Um, yeah. But we but. don't do that, Edward. No, I know. We keep saying we will, will, but we never ever do. No. Anyway, welcome everyone to episode number hundred and something, uh, hundred and twenty something. I know that. Um, this is your your host Brett Hadley and my co-host Shredwood Shredwood. Um, I was going to say Shredded Edward, or was I going to say? Edward shredded Ed Whitaker. I don't know. What do you prefer? Um, I mean, Ed rolls off the tongue pretty well. So just uh, <laughs> it has, I feel like a bit of a fraud when uh, people still call me Shredwood and things like that because it's been quite a while now. It's a bit like when you know you do that, you say that one funny thing at work, and then everyone's like, "Oh, the funny guy," and you're like, "No, no." Yeah. Well, I I don't. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been a while since you've been shredded, shredded. Would you say you were shredded for the photo shoot we did in April 17? God, blimey. Was it April 17 mm. or April 18? It must be April 18, actually. Not in comparison to the year before when I competed. I'd, I'd say I was lean, but I wouldn't have said I was, like, shredded. Yeah, because I, I look back at my photos and I think, I don't even think I would call myself shredded either. I'd call myself reasonably lean, like pretty lean, but not yeah. in the bracket of shredded. No, no, it's next level, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you've got to think like old washboard, old lady rubbing it up and down the board, you know, like the rags up and down the board, yeah. that kind of, I think yeah. from, from the abs, maybe I looked a bit like that because as we've talked about many a times, like I'm reasonably all right in the ab department. Just I look at the rest of my body and think, oh, I just needed way more striations to be far more vascular to be into that realm of shreddedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. You, like, yeah, I think we're on the way, but um, and you were, I'd say, leaner on the stomach than I was. Um, but yeah, no, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have called myself shredded. Mm. Uh, I think, just, I, I think maybe we needed what another five pounds, or was that too much? Maybe uh, two, two, two so I suppose, I, suppose at, that, at that level, a few pounds does make quite a lot of difference. Yeah, 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 definitely, and that's pretty much where you're holding it all as well as on your stomach. So take up even a pound off your stomach. Um, you're going to notice the difference. Um, I think I competed around the 73 mark, and I was like 75-ish mm. when yeah, we did yeah. that. So, so five, five yeah. pounds. Yeah. So about that. Uh, the, yeah. Thing is, the thing is, like two two pounds off somebody who obviously holds a reasonable amount of body fat. If you think about that, two pounds spread over their entire body is not noticeable at all. When no. you when you take like a few pounds spread over the entire body of someone already relatively like lean or in that shredded category, that does make quite a lot of difference. Yeah, and when it's the difference then between another another like uh, another striation coming out, striations are really obvious then. Um, or if it's the difference between like being lean but we're not veiny, and then being veiny lean when you're up close, like that's really obvious as well. I've uh, I've, I've, I've still got striations in my chest. I've just got uh, a massive belly overhang and love handles, which is really quite funny. 
I keep them in my shoulders really well. Like, yeah, even when I'm like up to sort of 85, 86 kilos, which is like my top end of my my weight where I'm comfortable and I am, you know, no abs, no, you know, little muscle, love belly. Um, cushion for the pushing. Uh, my shoulders are still striated like really well. So not obviously like shredded striated, but I can still see them in the mirrors and, you know, you can, you can count the muscle fibers. Yeah. Anyway, my friend, you've now moved into your house. How has that been? I have. I, have. Think we, I don't think you've been on since, have you? Uh, no, I've not. No, no, just been busy with moving and then work and stuff like that. So, uh, and then a few. <laughs> I'm supposed to have been on a couple of times, but with uh, various things cropping up and uh, stuff. So, uh, yeah, no, it's really good. It's nice. We're pretty much settled. Just waiting on the old sofa to arrive. So, what are you currently, currently uh, uh, we have stolen a wicker sofa from Alex's mum's conservatory. So, something. Yeah, so. I thought you were going to have like, blow up chairs <laughs> no no we were thinking it was going to be dining room uh, like table chairs and bean bags but uh, no we've, we've managed to steal this so it is all good good okay well I'm glad it's all uh, gone well I've, I said to one of my clients Amanda um, who moved into a, a flat last week or week before maybe last week I think and I said like obviously in terms of like from a dietary perspective uh, well not even really from a dietary perspective but obviously it's kind of linked from any perspective moving house is probably one of the most stressful things you can possibly do um, and obviously relate stress to then eating habits and like low on time and tired and lethargic stuff that's like whoa like it's a it's a minefield if you're trying to look after nutrition that period yeah I to be honest with you I think because we did do it very slow and steady we didn't really have too much stress with it all that there was the stress of um what color curtains to pick and not picking the wrong choice uh, <laughs> there was a lot of stress in that department and things but um, no in terms of actually like moving because we weren't trying to like do it all in one day um or moving up like our whole life and putting it somewhere else um and we didn't have like kids to worry about and all that sort of stuff we just kind of like gradually moved over the week so from when we got the keys, we just slowly took car loads of stuff, you know, every day or so uh, to the house and put it away and then got another car load the next day. So um, in terms of that, it, it made it quite stress, stress-free, really. Um, so I don't think I'm the best example of, uh, of that, but I'm sure hopefully when you come to, to, to move on, um, if you can sell yours, um, You'll you'll be able to give us a better account of that of having a couple of little ones and moving the whole life yeah. and the whole house full of stuff. That, that's going to be so. a whole different measure when you've got obviously like small children to worry about. Cause obviously, last time I moved, which was six years ago, nearly now. Um, yeah, I didn't have any kids then, so obviously no, exactly. a whole different whole different ball game now. Yeah, and you have got six years of crap as well to move. So yeah. I I think it'll be a case of dump those off with parents, the kids, um, mm. for like. A week and just say there you go you can look after them and <laughs> yeah it's uh it's probably the easiest way of doing it isn't it uh, i know my older sister she moved uh, about a month ago maybe a little bit longer and um she took looked after the kids and directed and shouted at everyone where where things needed to go and uh yeah all the guys did all the moving and, and stuff granddad came with one of his lorries and yeah, happy days. But uh, yeah, it's a different ball game, isn't it? Compared to when there's just two of you and you can just kind of do things as and when. It is indeed. Um, anything else been happening this week? No, no. Um, on a, what I thought you were going to say, actually, uh, just off that with um, food choices and stuff when you move into your own place. Obviously, if you've been living with 
like family and stuff like that or uh, have somebody else been doing all the cooking like being able to do your own cooking and being able to do your own chopping and everything that's brilliant for, for, for food choices and for making life easy um, providing you've got the food in the fridge and you can be asked to cook um, yeah so that's what I thought you were going to say and I was going to agree yes it's brilliant um, <laughs> no it's not what I was going to say although I, again I did have that exact conversation with Amanda um, we talked about being able to kind of now manipulate her food environment a lot easier because she hasn't for that reason she was living with her family and obviously had to kind of not had to eat what they ate but obviously found ourselves eating what they ate a lot of the time or there yeah. often be like foods that she wouldn't necessarily always choose just sitting around the house which like food environment plays such a massive role in people's kind of like dietary choices um like if you're living with family and they're the type of family that happens to always keep cereal out on the counters it's just it's temptation all the time because there's cereal out on the counter you can just grab whole 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 hands full of say or it might be a case of like there's just stuff in the fridge when you go to look in the fridge there's you know not particularly helpful or dietary diet diet friendly fucking hell jesus christ diet friendly foods in the fridge and stuff like that instead there might be the opposite stuff like chocolate and desserts or whatever else so when, when you're at home in your own environment and you can kind of then manipulate and set that up for like success for whatever your goal is that does make a huge difference doesn't it oh god yeah yeah massively um i think like the biggest one is just having like crap in the house or not having it in the house um it, well they're saying that they like if i was at alex's house i knew there was chocolate in the cupboards i was knew there was biscuits in the cupboard and stuff like that and then you they didn't eat it so if it if, if they didn't eat it nobody was going to so i had to eat it um yeah, so but, yeah but when you're, in, when you're in, especially when you're not in your house like you're at your girlfriend's like parents house say that's a whole different ball game because you hard i don't think you're going to be going i mean you might do i don't know maybe you're rude but you're not going to go through their cupboards going oh, i'm just going to eat all their chocolate and all their things it, it got to that point towards the end, yeah. I mean, like two years of, of living around there, you know, two, three times a week, um, I got relatively comfortable. <laughs> I, I, suppose, I suppose often as well, it depends on the, the personalities of the people, but obviously yeah, in laws yeah. as well, especially like the mother-in-laws, they try and force feed you a bit, don't they? Oh, I'll yes, fatten that boy yeah. up, he's, he's too skinny. I, I think I had the other way around, really. Like It depends on the, the meal. Too fat, but... mate, do it for fat shaming, that is unfair. <laughs> no, I was going to say, a portion sizes weren't always the best, so... Um, I'd find myself hungry like a couple of hours later so then I had to go and raid the cupboards um, I'd yeah imagine. whereas here we eat later so I don't find myself snacking later in the night and stuff like that so but I, I'd, yeah. I'd imagine that she's probably got a more appropriate uh, portion size than yours <laughs> yeah yeah when your daughter's five foot three and you know weighs about 40 kilos and uh her lad's quite thin i mean he's, he's my height but he's, he's he's slim as well so uh, i don't think any of them have got huge appetites so yeah when i'm coming around and eating more than their horses eat combined it's uh yeah well different. that's that's the difference of a restrained eater and a um yeah. i don't know what you call them a restrained eater and a natural eater <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because they're both three mouthfuls on full. I'm going to stop eating. Whereas I'm like, <laughs> my uh, my trousers don't feel tight. Yeah. <laughs> um, good. Uh, right. I I, yeah. I had a funny thing this week, and I'd like I don't know whether what, whether you can add any insight, but um, this week I've had the worst doms this week on like after. Well, to be fair, my upper body wasn't too bad. So so a little bit of context. So obviously, obviously, maybe not obviously. I don't know if it's on the podcast or not actually. Anyway, if it's not, I'm never going to say. I was ill week before last, a weekend, so nearly two weeks ago. Um, you know this, everyone else might not. Um, just basically picked the sickness bug up from my little girl, and I didn't eat for an entire, well, 36 hours. So I had an enforced 36-hour fast. So 
after that, I still felt a bit ropey for a good week or so after, but I did manage to eat pretty much back to normal after that kind of one stint of not eating. Yeah. Um, and I didn't. Tra- and that was a deload week for me anyway, fortunately. So basically, I just didn't train at all Sunday, Monday. Yeah, I didn't train at all Sunday and Monday. So I basically skipped the lower body and an upper body. I then just had a light session on the Wednesday, which is usually like an accessory day, and I just carried on that accessory day. Um, so nothing too major, and it was a de- it was kind of like a very light deload session anyway, where obviously reduced volume, reduced intensity as well, so not as much weight in the bar. Um, and then I just basically carried on with my usual deload sessions of a lower body, upper body again for the final two days of that week. So yes, one, a deload. Two, um, reduced training anyway by two days because of sickness, but that isn't a problem in a deload week anyway. Um, and then Saturday, we were, I was away uh, at uh, Lapland, not the actual Lapland, Lapland UK. Obviously, it's a long way to go just for a Saturday, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and although people do it. Um, yeah, and I, we stayed in a hotel. We stayed in a, in a Hilton Hotel in Bracknell. And my, me and my brother-in-law decided to go train in the morning on the Sunday just for a, you know, a, bit of a bit of a good you know, bro session or whatever. And we just basically did arms. And I must admit, my arms were so sore the following day, um, which... I didn't put it down to much other than like I never train arms or very rarely like I just the odd arm session for a, like fun basically every now and then but I don't even train them on average like it'd be less than once a week so and that might be like a couple of sets per muscle group obviously like biceps and triceps like less than once a week so I reckon my average is probably like one set a week or something um so I, I didn't I didn't really think much of them being sore because I thought well like novel stimulus or whatever and obviously haven't benefited from the repeat about effect too much so I expect that to happen fine I then trained legs on the Monday. Bear in mind, it was the first session, obviously, after deload week. And I must admit, my quads were actually sore squatting while I was squatting. Like, they actually felt painful. Not just, like, tired or fatigued like they might get during a normal session. They actually felt sore. And I was like, I haven't squatted other than a light session, obviously, from since the Wednesday. This was now the Monday. I thought, what's going on? I must admit, like, I could barely walk Tuesday. Like Dom's normally for me sets in a couple of days, like literally delayed. Whereas this was instant, like the following day. Why is that? It's horrendous. It's a funny one. So how long it had been without training? A week. Well, not without training week. legs. Not, 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 not even a week. A week. So yeah. I, but I basically skipped one session and then had like a lighter session because it was my deload week. Oh, I, it's a funny one, isn't it? But I put it down to potentially like recovery capabilities based on your illness. Maybe. So when you were ill, like your recovery just takes a massive hit anyway doesn't it so um yeah so whether kind of your immune system's linked to your recovery capabilities and oh, like you'd always say you know if you're ill don't train because it's not going to help you get any better um so maybe it's, it's something kind of to do with that even though you were better whether your recovery capabilities weren't optimal yeah. or, or sort of maximized it's, it's funny because uh, because yeah. obviously like i had a whole day about eating so obviously you know you could argue there's going to be some fluid issues hydration some potential like electrolyte issues which might all account for some of that um but obviously i was it was only the saturday sorry the sunday and so basically all day sunday i didn't eat so i didn't eat from like saturday tea time till monday morning or not even really monday morning monday sort of like late late morning maybe early afternoon maybe lunchtime um, which isn't a huge amount of time and then I was eating like force feeding pretty much almost not like reasonably normally from then on so and bear in mind this was like obviously Monday so obviously that then had pretty much a normal day's food Monday Tuesday Wednesday when I then trained legs Thursday yeah Thursday Friday Saturday and then Sunday and then Monday when I trained legs again so it's a long period of time and I did feel like stomach wise a bit ropey for most of those days but it didn't stop me eating or drinking or anything like that so 
maybe it was partly the the illness like a virus a bug maybe that had something to do with like you say recover recoverability i don't know i just couldn't work it out i, I, I basically the soreness is well over and above what i would have expected just purely from the back end like not training because of like being sick a couple of days in the deload yeah yeah that shouldn't that shouldn't really affect things because i mean you can go a week without training and not feel doms no. providing your sessions were the same and stuff i suppose then you could also uh, i mean you could argue maybe a little bit did you train your change your training at all did you change your form at all have you targeted your quad slightly differently um so i mean you can rule all that out so i put it down to that so i know when uh, i've mentioned this before on the podcast where i did a study when i was at university looking at bovine colostrum and um and that was all to do with immune systems and stuff like that and uh that was looking at the effects of training on your immune system weakening your immune system um so whether things can work in the other way as well whether your immune system can then dampen your, like, you know, if you're ill and you've got a cold or something, you're not going to have as good session as when you're 100%. Um, So whether that then can have an effect on your recovery as well. Yeah, on that, Mm. I suppose, like, I wouldn't necessarily notice a reduced performance in that session either because, obviously, it was a deload. It was already lighter weights, lower volume than usual anyway. So that might have masked some of the fact that had I had a normal session, I might have struggled to actually complete my normal session because, you know, the illness maybe. I don't know. That's a good idea. Yeah, and you might have noticed it a bit more then. So if you were, say, normally squatting 110 kilos, say. Get out of this. 100 kilos then. Uh, So say you normally squat 60 kilos for <laughs> rep max. Uh, <laughs> and, and if you were going to that, you might have, you know, you got to 50 kilos, you might have gone, oh shit, you know, this isn't going to happen today. I'll auto-regulate, I'll take it slightly easier on this and then push on with the rest of the, rest of the session. Um, you might have noticed then, whereas if you were, you know, only doing uh, 40 kilos for, for three reps, say, um, but as part of your deload, you, you never got to the point where you you were going to feel it yeah. uh, or notice it so yeah potentially potentially yeah the only other thing i could think of and we'll move on after this but was because i've been freewheeling my nutrition a lot the lot since basically october the start of october so the last what seven eight weeks now um my i have kind of made, tried to consciously make more than effort to eat more protein because i kind of like his, retrospectively assess some of the amount of protein and i'm probably not eating enough as in like i usually around the one gram per pound maybe slightly under which would be about i don't know 180 185 grams a day for me um, and i'm probably most days only really hitting between 120 140 so which you might argue is still enough and maybe it shouldn't affect like recoverability and stuff that much if anything or something like not not because obviously it's still in a range that you, you'd probably prescribe for people it's not like oh that's incredibly low but maybe that is enough to make a difference i don't know yeah, well, uh, have you noticed a difference in recovery in general since you stopped tracking? No. No. So, so there might be a collection of things, I don't know. Yeah, who knows, yeah. So I was interestingly speaking to a, a guy who I had a consultation with and we were going to pick up uh, training sort of later down the line when he was back in season and he's a, a cyclist. And he, I, I messaged him the other day just seeing how he was getting on with his off-season and uh, he said, oh, we were chatting away and he said, uh, by the way, I've... I've he said vegetarian, but um, he meant pescatarian. So he turned pescatarian. So he's still eating fish. Um, I'm not sure if he was eating dairy and stuff as well, but I think basically he cut out red and white meat. And um, and I was saying, well, you know, it'd be interesting to see how uh, your recovery is and and things like that. Now you're not eating as quite as much protein 
but also you're getting your protein from different sources and you're also limiting your um, sources of protein intake as well. Uh, but obviously with having lots of fish, you get lots of omega-3s so, uh, and 6s. Um, so yeah, so it, it, obviously the anti-inflammatory effects from those and stuff will be very good for the cycling. Um, but yeah, no, interesting. So, uh, so, so sort of similar sort of thing there, a reduction in protein and just kind of keeping an eye on um, uh, keeping an eye on recovery from that and seeing if, if that affects things or not. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll, I've said this, I've mentioned this kind of thing I've been doing a few times, either on like stories and podcasts and stuff, but not really giving away too many details. So I'll, we'll do an episode on it soon. Once it's kind of got to a latter end of my experiment, because it's, it's kind of been treated as an experiment. So um, yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll do an episode explaining kind of my thought process as to why I started and my experiences throughout. It'll be cool. <laughs> Let's actually remember that because, like we were saying earlier on, there's loads of things that we keep saying. Oh yeah, we'll do an episode on that, and then never yeah. do. Yeah, we end up on the come of a topic six minutes before we're due to record. Like tonight. So, um, anyway, right. speaking of that, great segue. We are due to talk today about intermittent fasting. Um, we will have no doubt many times discussed kind of the merits or kind of format of intermittent fasting etc etc on in in many guises but we thought we'd do a bit more of a dedicated episode so it will kind of probably repeat some of the stuff we said but hey ho like i said we had to come up with some content and it, it's always useful to have a bit of a refresher on our thoughts on on dietary protocols so that's yeah what we're i going think to do. it's also yeah it's also one of those things that's banded about quite a bit i think where um yeah so people sort of mention it and you kind of people have rough idea of what it is it is one of those things of fasting right that means not eating okay so i can kind of people can kind of guess what it is but i think uh a lot of people don't use it properly don't use it right uh don't know why they're doing it think it's magic um i think yeah Uh, that uh, that, that last point is what we want to cover today in terms of what magic is there to intermittent fasting? So maybe we'll, we'll start with like the other bit you mentioned around like people not necessarily know what it is. Um, so you can work out, I suppose, that from by, by definition of what it says, like intermittent fasting is not eating for intermittently, so for different periods of time or a period of time. Um, but it's probably also worth noting that maybe it's not like the, the terms used in the research, probably not necessarily what people will always think. So we, we in the fitness industry kind of use intermittent fasting as a catch-all term so to for, for what basically what i said just any periods of where people aren't eating but in the research actually it's it's a bit different they use kind of different terminology based on stuff so like so intermittent fasting you kind of got these these different terms of um like alternate day fasting is one kind of method or range of of intermittent fasting which as it said basically like fast one day um don't fast the next usually it's kind of down to like a low calorie amount so like often you hear like 500 calories or 25 percent of energy intake that type of stuff um on the like a fasting day and then people can basically add libitum on the next day so obviously that's kind of one protocol that has been studied and looked at and is often like prescribed i suppose there's there's obviously other methods so five two another one which is I suppose a lot, of, probably one of the most popular ones. I think a lot of people might know because I think it was popularised in a book. We looked it up quite recently, actually, didn't we? Am I right? Uh, I, was, I remember being on the podcast somewhere. We said, mm, I think it was not John. Me. No, I think it was Johnny. Actually, now I said it, but we were saying actually, five two is actually relatively new in terms of a protocol. We didn't. I think it came out in something like two thousand and twelve, two thousand thirteen, like the book basically that was created by whoever created the five two um, right. method. 
which I always thought was weird. I thought I thought I knew about it a lot longer than that, but clearly I hadn't because obviously it came out in, in that time. So we yeah. googled it. So, um, but essentially that is obviously five days of uh, normal eating, so ad libitum eating, and two days of fasting. Now those two days can be consecutive, or those two days could be split up non-consecutive. So they are kind of like the two main. I suppose like types of intermittent fasting now there's also time restricted feeding which i think is basically what we all use in the fitness industry and what maybe general population think of when they think of intermittent fasting so time restricted feeding is more around like just a window of eating like per day so it's not necessarily like alternate day fasting or five two it's more um like 16 8 so obviously having like a 16 8 fasting 16 uh, hour fasting window and then an eight hour feasting window say as an example so or, and I guess obviously those numbers can change to any any you want really like 24 or 18, 6 or anything else that adds up to 24 <laughs> hours a day um, I don't know whether you could do a, or what about 12, 6, 6 <laughs> you have like 6 hours eating that doesn't work does it because that still be 12, 12 yeah <laughs> you fucking you idiot <laughs> that wouldn't work so uh, uh, you could break up into like you go six, you six, 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 six. So you six yeah. hours on, six hours off. Um, yeah. I think we're just getting stupid now, don't you? Yeah, I think that just goes to show though that it it, it, it doesn't particularly matter. So yes, all right, you, you need some sort of guidelines on it. Like you can't, you know, not have breakfast at seven o'clock, but then have it at eight o'clock and say, oh well, I've just intermittent fasted. Like no, there's got to be some sort of restriction to it. So generally, with the time restricted. Basically, people would miss out food in the morning and go till lunchtime, so 12 o'clock, and then allow their eating window till, say, you know, 8 o'clock at night, and then say, right, okay, I'm not eating anything now till 12 o'clock the next day. Um, and that can get some, you know, really good results for people, providing, uh, and this is something we'll, we'll cover a bit later on, but providing they um, eat within those windows like a sensible, normal human. Um, and, and that goes with all the fasting as well, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely the most common, like, protocol people will follow like is the 16-8 for most and when you think about it like 16 hours fasting when you take into account sleep isn't that difficult or that hard because it is just a case of well actually you skip breakfast you start eating at 12 you're finishing at 8 like you can easily get in there 2-3 to three meals between 12 and 8 um, or like if you're on or if you're potentially a small individual they're not particularly active and your calorie or energy requirements are quite low then you might only have two meals, but obviously we'll get into those sort of details in a bit. But it gives you a bit of an idea that actually it's not particularly complex, and actually that's probably one of its pros or one of its benefits. Um, the fact that it is pretty simple, like it is like sixteen eight again, like you you, you get to twelve o'clock, you have a meal, you know, you might then get to four o'clock and you have a meal, and you get to eight o'clock and you have another meal. It's like hmm, okay, that actually isn't too different than maybe what I already do, other than I get up in a minute and I just eat breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Nine times out of ten, you're just removing breakfast. That's just removing a big chunk of calories, um, and that's kind of the premise behind it for weight loss. Um, but could there be oh, other spoiler alert? Could there be any other added benefits to fasting? Well, I think that's the, the reason why most people use it is is for weight loss, isn't it? Would you say? Uh, well, I think people people think the ad, the the main benefit to fasting. I think general population, the main benefit of fasting is weight loss. Yeah, I think that's 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 kind of like my belief. Um, certainly, what I believed mostly when I first heard it that it was some kind of special thing that enhanced weight loss. 
Um, but there are many other claims from it in terms of things like, um, obviously it helps you lose weight, but um, detoxification, speeding up metabolism, um, which obviously links into losing weight, the speeding up metabolism part, but um, boosting brain function, uh, improving immune system. We spoke obviously before the podcast around like autophagy or autophagy, I don't actually know how to pronounce that, but which is basically the process of regenerating cells and that's linked in with longevity and living longer and all this type of stuff. We, the reason we spelled before and didn't we? Because we said, well, to be honest, we don't know enough of the evidence to have a, any type of really like l- legitimate view on it, I suppose, um, in terms of from that aspect, from, from the autophagy bit. But maybe that's just something we can do. We can, we can find someone that's kind of more well-read in that area and, and get them on and, and speak about it. But Yeah, but, I remember looking at it in a course many, many moons ago and, uh, yeah, I couldn't tell you apart from literally what you said I, I, and I, when I was trying to describe it to you earlier in text it, I butchered it pretty badly of what, how I was trying to explain it <laughs> and you were just like you mean this yeah yeah, yeah that's the one <laughs> but obviously there's loads of other claims like improved insulin sensitivity preventing cancer and like cardiovascular disease and, and all manner of stuff and basically fasting at some point was kind of thought of as the like the, the, the ultimate unicorn of diets and that is going to be like a cure for everything where i think like when you start looking into most of the research anyway like i said the autophagy bit aside um i'm going to call it autophagy even if it's autophagy i don't fucking know but we're going to stick with autophagy um that aside like when you look into the research for most of the other things it's very wishy-washy in terms of whether there's actually any real um science behind it so i use the term science rather than evidence because you've got to look at obviously the overall evidence base to create like a scientific conclusion not just pick out a study that backs up so that's kind of why i specifically use the term science and not evidence-based because you can almost find evidence for most things let's be honest um just how strong is the evidence but anyway so i guess like let's let's kind of talk about the weight loss bit first um you've already done a spoiler and said that oh its main benefit is it's reducing calorie intake so let's go on with that so why don't you expand on that edward uh okay so if you were to do it properly, um, essentially what you would be doing is eating a normal day's food, normal meals, but just from basically removing breakfast and evening snacking. Um, if you were to do like a 16-8 type thing. So um, so let's just start with a 16-8. So yeah, you stop eating at uh, 10 o'clock at night or whatever it is, 8 o'clock at night, sorry. And you go through till 12 o'clock next, next lunchtime. And if you were to, uh, to, to do that, um, then that would take out any evening snacking. It would take out any breakfast and morning snacking. So then you would go and have your lunch. You would have your evening meal as normal. Um, and and that would be it. So you might have their 1,200 calories, something like that. Whereas typically normally you would have 2,000 calories because you throw in another you know 500 for breakfast and a um, a few other hundred for, for snacks. So by doing that, you were taking out a huge chunk of calories, which would then hopefully put you in a calorie deficit. And what a lot of people, well, a lot of people don't realize that. So then they go and have a huge lunch because they're starving, um, and go and have like three sandwiches from the shop or whatever. Um, and then they'll have another meal at like four, three, four o'clock, something like that. And then they'll go again 
um, at six o'clock for their evening meal and then they'll cram in all the snacks before eight o'clock because if they don't do that then they're gonna die in that 16 hours um, so actually they then end up having 2,500 calories and they are worse off so bearing in mind the fact that you need to think well okay well I've got to eat normally and normal foods and normal portions and all that sort of stuff just take out a big chunk of them uh, by removing breakfast and snacks um, so that, that's kind of one way of uh, that you can do it so and if you were to look at the like five two where you would eat normally for five days and it's eating normal for five days it's not going right okay well i've just had a day or two days of uh, not eating so i'm now going to eat everything in the world because i'm starving uh again you're just going to put those calories back in mm-hmm. but it's a bit more extreme with the the five two because if you normally eat, again two thousand calories a day and you're removing 4,000 calories from your uh, from your your weekends a short amount of time I think you've got more room to slip up there with uh, kind of like a starve binge type thing I think you need to be pretty disciplined for that whereas just missing a meal missing breakfast which let's face it a lot of us don't have if we're if it's not routine or if we're not forced to have it um, and if we're busy in the mornings and we don't realize we've not had it um, I think it's a slightly easier way of going about things but yeah so basically you need to take calories out of your diet by skipping meals um and uh, yeah not replacing those calories later on in the day by trying to make up for them yeah and i think like it's it's probably prevalent to prevalent throw away don't know. it's probably uh, useful anyway to tell people that there, there doesn't seem to be based on the what evidence there is out there any kind of metabolic advantage despite some of the claims about fasting so it doesn't like the overall body again of evidence doesn't seem to suggest that you know you burn more calories when you're fasting um compared to like a, just a straight or like a normal um straight calorie restricted diet so therefore there's kind of like not this metabolic advantage as such so if that's the case we kind of think well really the benefits of fasting is in adherence and simplicity really in that it's like a really simple thing to implement because you don't, you don't really have to even think about um, food choices per se too much in that like the, the, the studies that are done on, on humans in these different types of like intermittent fasting protocols for the most part and this might be something because of the population they're done on potentially and which might be a bit of a pitfall but for the most part people don't eat back like their calories that they miss when they fast. So they end up inevitably creating this calorie deficit over the whatever the time period is. So if that's the case, obviously they should then lose weight. And the reason they probably don't eat back is because it might just be a case of like for a lot of people, it's easy to adhere to. Now, this is why I said about the pitfall being might be the population that a lot of these studies are done on, i.e. kind of not already obese people um, or people with really poor food relationships or people that are already severely affected by like the food environments or whatever reason people are already overeating because it might be a case that some of them people would eat back their calories quite significantly and obviously again that's like anything in these studies you'll when you look at the the results of these studies there might not be significant differences in stuff but it doesn't mean that individually there isn't significant differences so it might be for like each individual person one person might actually have severely under ate through the fasting period and didn't eat their calories back and other people might have um, not particularly under eight and eight back quite like all or more of their calories on other days. So you kind of have to take, obviously you take the, the actual study results sometimes as a, as an average and, and therefore like a pinch of salt. So it's worth kind of thinking that, but if you are a person that, and I do find for most people that I've worked with like anecdotally, most people can get away with skipping breakfast reasonably easier. And usually if there's any pushback or resistance to start with, that goes once people try it. I don't know what your experience is there. 
to be honest, I don't think I've. I don't use it too much, um, just because a lot of the clients that I've had with tracks and stuff like that. But I've always said, you know, there's nothing magic about eating or not eating breakfast. Um, so, uh, I suppose the, I, the, re- yeah. the reason I say that is because when when you're dieting, obviously you need credit card deficit, as we've already established. When you create a calorie deficit, you're on reduced calories, which might mean for people that they feel like they're not particularly satiated like over the day with the amount of food they can eat. Now, one of the good things about intermittent fasting and the research out there is that most people report that they can adhere to diet better because they feel more satiated um, over the longer term. And that's probably because most people can kind of just put up with longer periods of hunger to feel more satiated when they do eat than basically spreading that food out and basically having slightly less periods of hunger but um, never really feel satiated when they eat because they just basically don't consume enough food in one go. Yeah, I've I've 100% used it myself. Um, Now, this isn't something we spoke about before and it's not something on the the agenda, but a uh, protein-modified fast is something that I've used more and something that I've used with clients as well. Um, So this would be where you have protein but just solely protein as as that sort of first meal of the day uh, and i know this is something we are going to touch upon a little bit later about uh, muscle protein synthesis and i'm assuming you were going to maybe mention it then yeah um so um that is something that i've done but with like a straight fast because a lot of my clients are into muscle building and things like that uh, i haven't just straight away turned around and said right okay cut out your breakfast and don't eat anything until later but when I've not been so on it with the gym and I've been a bit crap with training and I said, right, okay, well, I'm going to have plenty of protein just for the rest of the day. It is such a great tool um, for doing exactly what you said, uh, where you can enjoy more food later on and, um, yeah, you can enjoy bigger meals later on as well. So if you're somebody who potentially isn't as fussed about growing as much muscle as possible and being as optimal in muscle growth as possible, so so maybe you're um, an athlete in another kind of, you know, a runner or a cyclist or something like that, or you just want to lose weight or just into general health and fitness, um, something like this is a great way of enjoying more food later down the line. Uh, especially like if you were going out for, for food in the evening or something. So you were going out for dinner with friends. If you uh, miss breakfast and miss morning snacking and said, right, okay, then I'm going to have a light lunch and then I'm going to go all out in the evening. It then gives you your basically your daily calorie uh, amount to play with in the evenings. Um, and it's a lot easier to do um, than to maybe try and pinch from other days or from just kind of, you know, going way over target. Yeah, I think some like the research like psychology research on um well, i don't know what what kind of sector you call it really but basically like investment research and psychology in terms of like risk and reward that type of stuff i know that there is some really strong evidence based on the fact that human beings tend to feel losses like twice as hard as they do f- like kind of feel the rewards or gains from kind of things and obviously that specifically relates to like investments and stuff but i do also think that really aligns with this type of stuff as well and if you kind of relate hunger to it i think people um kind of they they kind of can manage the hunger better because they can just basically put up with longer periods of hunger um but then obviously feel more satiated in the periods where they're then eating they just basically i think they can people can manage that better i don't know if that's a very good analogy actually now i'm gonna run it back over my head but Maybe You've got the, the is it the Haribo advert? Whereas if you leave the Haribo, the one Haribo, you can have a whole bag afterwards. But if you have that one now, uh, then you can't have it later on. It's kind of like falls back to that a little bit. 
Yeah, well, uh, partly I think obviously a lot of people reference the marshmallow study back in the seventies, yeah. yeah. whatever it was, um, about uh, delayed gratification and relating to higher success in later life, etc. But yeah, I think it, obviously I think just just to bring it back, obviously on point, I suppose like what we're saying is fine if it works for you. Like basically, it, it'll work for some people, and it won't. Um, just bear in mind, it's not special. There's no metabolic advantage. It, it, if, if anything the specialty in it or the kind of like the, the key thing is, it, is the adherence part and for it to adhere it's got to be suitable to your preferences and tastes and stuff and I do think the simplicity of something like you know a simple rule of eating between two hours or two like a window is like really easy to implement like people don't need to know a lot of nutritional knowledge to just say only eat between these people's now obviously it's not perfect there's plenty of pitfalls because we know plenty of people that just go right I'm going to eat constantly from the hours of 12 to 8 o'clock <laughs> and obviously that's probably going to be detrimental or don't lend itself very well to, to weight loss or fat loss. But for most people, if they kind of still try and stick to a normal eating pattern, like the research says, like people tend to, the humans tend to not really eat back, you know, on average, the calories that they that they then miss through fasting. So, which might get onto some of the other claims like health. So what we do know is that there are claims around health benefits. So um, I, I kind of mentioned at the start around kind of like lower disease rates, um, anti-aging like autophagy and stuff and um, I know there's also a lot of stuff where people talk about um, like brain diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other things like maybe dementia and things where this kind of like fasting produces I don't really know what the mechanisms are but basically it helps um, protect against some of these kind of like brain diseases as well so um, I'm not an expert I would like people will probably correct me or us or, or whatever I'm sure but what I kind of understand is that the evidence base that's out there on this is pretty sketchy in terms of like causal mechanisms in that they don't really know and a lot of the time when people kind of get healthier even physically so not even some of like the the, the brain stuff I just talked about but some of the physical um, things like cardiovascular disease and cancer and stuff a lot of the time like they're associated they're correlated not necessarily like causational evidence so what i mean by that is like most of these stuff because humans don't tend to eat back their calories they pretty much all align with added weight loss as well and yeah we've talked about it before <laughs> if there's weight loss in a study ha- like it's almost impossible to like separate out what is causing someone to become healthier is it the weight loss or is it the thing you're trying to test i.e the fasting now i I think that there is like in in the studies that they've seen improved health markers and stuff in animals and things like that that's easy to do because they can obviously stop animals eating and they can overfeed animals quite easily like mice say and get them to eat back the calories that they've missed through their fasting whereas that doesn't tend to happen in humans so you can't really compare the two studies um even if you could like mechanistically because like you wouldn't necessarily compare animal studies most people would obviously not really create a lot of weighting for animal studies anyway because we're not animals we're not mice or whatever and we are very very different but even that aside like you still can't compare because like the the fasting literature on animals is it tends to be a lot of that is kind of like weight maintained whereas in humans they pretty much all have weight loss so it's obviously really difficult to then like take too much out of it yeah definitely definitely um Oh, there's something I'm gonna say. No, it's gone. Uh, yeah, no. I think that's the thing. Like when people claim health benefits of fasting, it's kind of like, well, what what we've talked about before is, well, you know, a lot of these things where, 
I don't know things like improved insulin resistance, um, like lower rates of like IGF one and and that type of stuff, which is related to some of these things, uh, or certainly like considered markers of some of these like health um, or, or like the like improved health markers basically. Um, a lot of those are actually mimicked by just having things like lower carbohydrates at certain times of the day. So it might just be a case of, or like, let's not say having to fast, but just kind of having periods of lower carbohydrates or having periods of, I mean, all, all a lot of those things actually relate to just increased exercise and other stuff. So it's kind of like, is, is fasting magic? I don't think there's really any, any like real strong evidence base to say that yes, fasting is magical and has all of these protective health benefits, which a lot of people claim. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, the thing I was going to say um, when you mentioned metabolism and things like that, uh, one of those things you can kind of dispel a little bit is when they say, oh, yeah, but if I'm not eating, then I'm not burning the food that I'm my uh, body's processing, so I must be burning body fat. Um, so I'll be burning more body fat from fasting. Uh, but again, it's one of those things that only if you are uh, in a calorie deficit because if you then eat back all those calories then you're just going to be burning those calories for longer and during your fast or the start of your fast you'll be burning those calories still that's what i wanted to say just quickly yeah. um nothing to do with what you just said but it came into my head yeah. and uh, <laughs> yeah. so basically you, you, you um, yeah. burn more now but you just store more later so it just evens up. Yeah. exactly yeah, which, so, is, yeah. which is basically i mean we haven't even talked about fast cardio because not not necessarily i mean it's kind of related but not but it's the same principle isn't it yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, absolutely. So, yep, um, and again, it's one of those things that there's limited evidence and it's not conclusive, and yeah, so. I think, I mean, maybe we get on to some of the, um, I suppose maybe we get on to, actually, no, I'll tell you what I did, I've written that note down, actually, which we haven't talked about, which I wanted to, to just kind of quickly cover off. There was the Matador study a couple of years ago, um, which is... Uh, comparing basically like again we, we've we've kind of touched it on it a little bit um the um oh my god why is the phrase gone like basically straight calorie restriction again compared to two weeks on two weeks off so and that 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 paper result was quite like unique when it came out because i remember thinking like wow the group that were two weeks on two weeks off lost significantly more weight even though calories were kind of equated against people that just had a straight calorie restriction for like the um well basically the same reduction in calories like why have they lost more weight because you would argue that if, if thermodynamics was a thing that they should have lost the same amount of weight yeah you remember the matador study i think um, i not not off the top of my head i was um, just going to I typed into my phone then to just refresh it. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, I, I, I can basically just, just go, go through it quickly. But basically, there yeah, are like 51 people, or 51 men actually, with obesity, randomized in the 16 weeks of either a continuous uh, diet, so straight calorie restriction or intermittent calorie restriction. Um, where is it? So two, so eight times two-week blocks of uh, energy restriction. It was seven times two-week blocks of energy balance, so 30 weeks in total. 47 participants completed four-week baseline phase and commenced the intervention. Uh, da, 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 da. During energy restriction, energy intake was equivalent to 67% of weight maintenance required in both groups. So basically, the energy intake was equated across both groups. So they so effectively should have lost the same weight if you know thermodynamics exist, basically. Yeah. But the intermittent group lost, where is it? Uh, intermittent had greater fat loss, uh, sorry, fat mass loss uh 12.3 i remember it now versus, yeah, yeah versus yeah. eight eight uh i assume that's kilograms yeah eight kilograms uh standard deviation of 4.2 
but fat-free mass loss was similar. So um, they're basically saying, oh, okay, um, that's really interesting. So basically dieting two weeks on, two weeks off is greater than just dieting straight through. There's some sort of metabolic advantage there, which everyone's like, well, that's amazing. Well, I'm going to start implementing that for everyone. I'm going to start saying, right, you have two weeks of a, of a, of a diet and then two weeks off. Now, obviously, one of the immediate detriments there or like negative sides that you think, well, your diet takes twice as long because you instead of doing an eight week diet, you're doing a 16 week diet because you're obviously two weeks on, two weeks off, say. So two weeks diet and two weeks of maintenance. Um, but most people would do that if it meant that they obviously had a metabolic advantage. Now, I remember Krieger talking about this and he kind of pointed out something that I wasn't smart enough to kind of realize. But he basically said that a lot of the uh, ways they measured energy intake stuff um, was probably incorrect on the basis of he thought that the reason the inter, uh, intermittent group did better was because they basically adhered better because it's much easier to adhere to think, oh, I'm going to go for two weeks and then I've got a break than it is to think, oh, fucking hell, I've got a diet for like 16 weeks straight or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I utilise that with a client. Uh, well, I was um, because of adherence. Uh, not because they struggled to stick to the lower calories, but it was just more of a like time of the month. So increasing calories around that time of the month just helped them not binge in, in those sort of two weeks of the you know female uh, client, so time of the month. Um, so yeah, so that, then we, we kind of utilized that because it, it then meant that they stuck to it a bit better. So we ate at maintenance for two weeks and then a deficit for two weeks. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I have utilized that sort of thing and, and it was literally purely down to adherence there was no kind of um thoughts of, of anything else um yeah even having read that study uh, did they did they give any cause for it in the conclusion or the discussion no not really they i mean they even measured the so they said like wild reduction in absolute rest energy expenditure did not differ between groups after adjusting for changes in body composition it was significantly lower in the um the int group so obviously the intermittent group mm. which obviously kind of goes against what they're predicting necessarily but I mean, their conclusion was basically greater weight and fat loss was achieved with intermittent energy restriction, interrupting energy, oh, sorry, in, interrupting, um, yeah, energy restriction with energy balance rest periods may reduce compensatory metabolic responses. So basically they seen that there's a, like a metabolic advantage because it may be potentially stopped like adaptations and stuff in, like we know, metabolic adaptation of like starvation mode, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. So, which... For the difference in groups, I mean, you're talking obviously like the the mean average over that was like four, nearly five kilos difference between the two groups. Mind, yeah, it was both pretty had big. Sixty-seven percent yeah. energy um, intake of their mate of their usual diet, so it's quite quite a lot big difference between the two. Mm, definitely. Um, do we? Well, is it recorded at all of? As and when did they lose uh, lower calories when they plateaued and things like that? Cause... No, no, no. I think it was it was set from the outset. There were no adjustments throughout. I think I'll have to go back and read the actual full study, okay. but I can't remember. But so that could be something as well. If there's no adjustments and you were just saying, right, okay, we're going to take twenty percent of your calories away from you. Um, well, thirty-seven percent wasn't it? Isn't it taken yeah, away? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, thirty-three. So if we're taking thirty-three, um, and you might reach that over the eight weeks, uh, if you're doing a sixteen-week diet, you might reach that. You know, that might become your new maintenance after eight weeks, and then you've got eight weeks of maintain of like just plateau. Whereas the other way around, you might uh, adjust, and you might have some metabolic adaptation to that, 
Um, so you might end up being able to lose more by doing it slightly slower and steadier and, and all that. So Yeah, I mean, there's some merit in that. I think I still align with what Creek has said in that the biggest advantage between the two groups is probably the fact that adherence is that yeah. one was just far easier to adhere to. So people probably misreported on the, like the straight, you know, the straight consecutive or straight calorie restriction rather than intermittent mm. because it's just a lot harder to fucking stick to than, and obviously only two weeks because two weeks you get a nice break. No, that's all right. I can manage that. Yeah, yeah. And there definitely wasn't a um, box in the questionnaire for you to tick to say uh, how many times have you cheated on your diet uh, <laughs> in oh. this time, and you, you know, you put ten times or whatever, and then the other one. I mean, maybe that's something that they should do in a future study or there's a follow-up study. Um, do it again and then say, right, okay, I'll answer this truthfully. Yeah. You I, know, how, many, I, how many times have you gone over? I just uh, thought it was um, interesting to bring up the, the Matador study because one that often a lot of people refer to in terms of kind of like the, the weight loss benefits. and Yeah. It's inter- it's interesting discussion really uh, based on that. But um, So, yeah, I, I, maybe we just get on to some of the considerations now. So you've mentioned one already. So... Obviously, we've talked about benefits mainly being adherence and simplicity and stuff like that and just allowing people to basically adhere to a, a calorie deficit, which is required um, the same as any other diet you ever choose to do. Um, we've kind of talked about the health benefits and stuff already or potential health benefits there are and maybe why they, you, you shouldn't put a huge amount of stock in that compared to, again, other diets. But some of the considerations that you already spoke about was kind of like for people that want to or interested in muscle gain or preservation of their lean body mass and physique and stuff um you mentioned about muscle protein synthesis yes so as we have harped on about quite a few times and done many episodes on uh you'd be looking to spread your protein intake out throughout the day with windows of three to five hours or so so if you were then fasting for 16 hours that's quite a big window where you're not spiking muscle protein synthesis to help with the recovery so by skipping potentially you know two three windows of well two or three spikes of recovery you are then limiting your your recovery capabilities and potentially your progress so if you compared somebody who was doing a 16-8 diet uh compared to somebody who was just eating you know a normal calorie deficit or just a normal calorie maintenance amount or whatever uh, but spreading their protein intake out across is there going to be a difference maybe not huge but there may well be a difference and if you're struggling to gain muscle that could be that could be all the difference um just, yeah just, just uh, to put it into context then like you just said so like someone that is doing the the 16 8 12 to 8 o'clock eating they might spike like three times optimally 12 4 8 yeah yeah, yeah. but obviously someone that isn't limited to that window might do 8 12 Four, eight, 12. ten, or, or yeah, or yeah. maybe not twelve. Maybe it's a bit late. But you know what I mean? Maybe it might be eight. You know, you could if you're being really optimal, you could be like eight, eleven, four, or like three, sorry, six, ten. That kind of like. So you might yeah. get five or even six feedings in, which should, like you like you said, the the impact in the longer term might be bigger than like we we can't really. It's almost like you can't measure it. The impact in the smaller term, like. You can mechanistically do it in terms of like you can see the muscle protein synthesis response, but we don't really know how that then relates to actual hypertrophy and actual muscle gain um, in the short period. It might be a case of like if you did that every day for 10 years, you'd see a noticeable difference, um, but you wouldn't necessarily see a noticeable difference doing that from day to day, week to week, month to month, or even year to year potentially. 
but yeah but let's suppose, is, if is there's any twins to... out there that don't weightlift that want to try this we can yeah, or you know you've not weightlifted for any longer than 12 months hmm. get in touch <laughs> info at triple and we just need a bit of funding we'll be all right <laughs> yeah. no you've got you've got to be self-funded so you've got to buy your own protein <laughs> but i think that's that's one of the considerations in that if you're kind of like as i say interested in strength gains or muscle gain or like I don't want to say preservation of physique because it's kind of suggests that oh my god if you don't if you fast you're going to lose all your muscle mass which obviously again isn't really kind of backed up by any data or, or really true I think you'd probably still be okay because total protein counts for the most part more than kind of like nutrient timing in terms of how many protein servings you get but still it's a consideration for people that want to be optimal about it. Um, the other thing is right fasting. Just quickly on that though where you said about total protein amount so if you were consuming 200 grams of protein in a day um and you were spreading that between five and six meals obviously you're looking at about 30 grams of protein per per meal which would be um you know a good a good amount per meal which would you'd roughly recommend um and all that so if you were then having to have like 60 grams of protein per meal to hit that uh, muscle protein synthesis and and in each one um, to hit your total protein goal, that's a lot of protein, so that's a big spike. So is that spike going to come back down to baseline before you eat again in three to four hours' time? Um, potentially not. So you're you potentially there, like, messing up your, your spikes as well, um, if you're trying to be really optimal. There's, there's obviously people that do one meal a day, so they might eat 150 grams of protein in one meal. Well, and exactly. Again, like, I think most people would argue and, and say that, yeah, that's not optimal, um, which it probably isn't. But based on the mechanistically, uh, we know spiking it over longer periods creates a, a net, a, a higher net positive protein, um, like synthetic rate than obviously having one, um, mm-hmm. one spike. But so yeah, that's, obviously it's a fair point. The the practical aspects of eating 150, 200 grams of protein in one meal is obviously probably also quite difficult. Um, and even yeah, some people might. I I could probably eat sixty grams every three me- in three meals over over eight hours probably quite easily. I don't think that's particularly difficult, but some people might struggle. Um, some people struggle to eat sixty grams in a day. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, obviously, I suppose there's some of the consideration. One thing I was just going to bring up around as well is around training. So, like, if you're doing like some of the IF models of like alternative day fasting or five, two, or even potentially like time restricted feeding of 16, eight or whatever, you've got to consider about nutrient timing and when you'll train. So if you're like fasting for two days, cause you're doing five, two, you don't want to be doing no on training days because you're probably not going to get particularly good training sessions out of like being fasted for like a whole day, etc. So if you're doing that, you obviously need a consideration of like, if you want to do that, fine, but make sure like you're probably training on days where you're not fasting. Um, and the same with like restricted eating, your training probably wants to fit in a period where either probably after you've eaten. So if you're, if you're kind of like uh, an early morning trainer, then you might want to, potentially shift your training later in the day the, the like the day before so that you're better fueled maybe replenish more glycogen for when you train first thing in the morning um or vice versa if you're an evening training then maybe shift your meals up and have breakfast lunch and like an earlier dinner and then train and then not eat afterwards potentially um obviously again you could argue about optimality of like protein feedings around after training stuff like that so basically it does make it a bit more complex potentially if you're doing fasting when it comes to things like training and muscle growth and stuff so that's kind of what we want to kind of bring up those those 
considerations because it might be stuff that people haven't thought of if they if they were thinking about trying intermittent fasting yeah definitely i'm glad you raised that last point then about if you were fasting then train sorry eating then training and then fasting after training you yeah you, you might be shooting yourself in the foot slightly with recovery capabilities I, and stuff. I, yeah. I do i do probably think it's maybe a little overplayed though because like it takes a while to digest and assimilate proteins so like if you're eating before training so you might be so in that example of like breakfast lunch and early dinner and then train you're still going to be kind of getting those amino acids in after you train um from like the meal beforehand they're not going to just suddenly like i've eaten two hours before and then they're gone it takes a lot longer than that and obviously if you had like reasonable yeah. size ones as well because you've you've got like the example we gave a 60 60 60 grams that 60 gram like po- your body's smart like postprandially it will slow down gastric emptying and digestion and drip feed those those amino acids slower anyway so i do think it's a bit overplayed and probably not something most need to worry about unless you're maybe a professional bodybuilder or got some really like huge interest in it um i don't basically i don't think it would be a huge negative might not be optimal but i don't think it'd be a huge negative and i do think adherence probably trumps even that optimality of muscle growth potentially anyway yeah it comes down to that total protein amount again doesn't it so hit that first and then look at splitting it out throughout the day so i think lastly we we kind of talked about potential um stuff on chrononutrition so basically like your uh eating windows in comparison to your like circadian rhythms and stuff um, which is obviously a newly emerging area. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, and I haven't had a chance to go through it yet, but um, Danny Lennon has just put out what I understand to be the most amazing article because obviously it's an it's a topic he's hugely interested in, done loads of research on, and I think he's put it out through the Stronger by Science guys like Greg Knuckles and Alex Tre- Eric Trexler. So you can just go on their site and download it, um, which I haven't, like I said, haven't read it yet, so I can't really comment on it. But I, I understand it to be amazing. So if you're interested in chrononutrition and like basically the effect of when you eat on your health in terms of like daytime, nighttime, that type of stuff, because um, eating in line with your circadian rhythms, well worth a read, I'd imagine. So um, I will do that at some point. And um, we had Alan Flanagan on talking about chrononutrition way, way, way back in the day before he became uber famous. So um, maybe someone can go back and listen to that if you're interested in that as well. But it's just worth considering the fasting thing because obviously if you're if you're picking a window of eating and you're choosing to eat like later in the day, there is some emerging evidence that might not be the best for health potentially in terms of there's some of the health markers that we look at for, for optimal health. Eating like later in the evening, so maybe... Uh, often is quoted like past five, six o'clock at night. So usually most people's tea times basically, or an early-ish tea time, um, might not have, or might have like potentially worse health outcomes compared to eating around the day. Now, I don't want to overstate that. I think the differences might still be seen to be quite minor and probably not too much of a problem for most people. And certainly like a small detail compared to, are you in calorie balance? Are you exercising regularly? Are you eating plenty of fruits and vegetables? And all the other massive, like huge, um, healthy habits or healthful habits that we would usually suggest I think this probably pales a little bit into insignificance but I'm not well read in chrononutrition and stuff so it's hard for me to really give too much comment on it other than kind of like brief high bullet points and ops of stuff that I've kind of heard and stuff so but it's worth consideration or knowing about and if you, it's something that might um, interest you go and look into it a bit more or um, as I say maybe we'll get someone to kind of talk about it again yeah maybe we should get see if Danny himself will come on I doubt it, mate. He's too big. He's got his own podcast to worry about. He's like seven billion episodes into his own. Too too big time for us now. We were above him uh, in the charts at one point, so fucking. Hell. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, two we're years ago. We were riding those movie games, though. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you have rounded up in that quite nicely, um, I have good product, bad product. Yes. Go for uh, it. Right. So I can't, I can't see your camera, though. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so normally where we'd get the other person to describe what they see, um, my camera's not working because I've decided, well, my Mac's decided to half give up on life. So, um, right, so uh, product number one is the Pringles, uh, I think they're calling them the, uh, I've annoyingly thrown the tube away. Um, let me just get the other one. That's... Very well prepared, Edward. No, I know, I know. Uh, so the Pringles Rice Fusion. Oh, God, can you hear me? Yeah. So what are they like? Rice-based uh, Pringles? Mm, no, they're Rice Fusion, so they're all like kind of like Asian-y um, flavours. Are, are, are they made of rice? I uh, don't think so, no. Um, just normal Pringles. Uh, I assume they're like a rice base. Um, oh, God. Uh, don't worry about it. I'm not that bothered. No, no, uh, no. Uh, rice, uh, rice flour. Yeah, rice flour. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Makes sense. Um, right. So you got the the rice fusion. They've got loads of different flavors, but the one I'm going to be using is the masala one. So it's in like a red tube. Um, yeah. So uh, Pringles masala flavored. It's a bit like chicken tikka masala okay. uh, flavored Pringles. So that is one. And the other one is. I already know that's going to be the one you're going to enjoy. But go on, Carol. No, the other one is. Uh, M and M's with crispy pieces, uh, like Nutella spread type thing. Ah, uh, right, okay. Um, yeah, I've had those. So, um, well, I would definitely go with the M and M's because that would be my thing. I'm not a crisp man. I had this conversation exactly this week with with Jenna in the car. We were going somewhere, and she was talking about those pop chips that you can buy. Yeah, I said, oh, I quite like those, but. We got in a conversation about, to be honest, I like them, but the sort of thing that I never got my way to pit because I just don't really do crisps. Not just like I yeah. like crisps. And as in, like, I'll eat them and I think, oh, they're all right. But it's nothing, nothing, nothing that I really got my way to pick. Um, and, yeah, they just don't overly bother me. So I would definitely go for the M&Ms. And if it's got Nutella in it and crispy bits, then, you know, you've got all the good stuff. Well, it's like the M&M spread. It's their version of a spread. So basically like Nutella, but with M&M bits yeah. in, basically. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so okay, so the M&M spread was amazing. Uh, very, very good. A bit awkward to spread with the big chunks of M&Ms in, but, mm. you know, we'll get over that. Um, the Pringles, however, tasted like cardboard, and there was no real flavor to them. Ah. So they were a bit like a shit Tex-Mex type thing. Um, well, so can, they were disappointing. I can yeah. solve your spreading issue. You need obviously something substantial and uh, something that has some structure to it to spread it on. So basically, don't do like like warm white bread or something because obviously that will just disintegrate as you spread. You need something like a thick, heavy bagel. Yes, yeah, no, that would definitely work better. Uh, or a good crumpet. Um, crumpet, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, however, though, and just for you know, bit of extra bang for your buck. The uh, Peking duck with host and sauce flavored rice Pringle things are amazing, and they taste exactly what they say they should taste like. So there is that. Good to know. Right. Yeah. On that note, um, I will see you Saturday at the oh, Health yes, for Every Age. That's right, isn't it? Health for Every Age uh, clinical conference. So this will be great fun. I'm look, much looking forward to the after party. Um, I think obviously by the time this goes out, it'll have been and gone. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll do a, a roundup on that episode of what we learned um, because it is very, there are some very interesting speakers and topics there, and obviously there hopefully will be some great fun in in the shots in the in the bar afterwards. So yeah, definitely. Well, maybe we should 
uh, awkwardly reposition these episodes because I know we're recording another one on Sunday uh, with a guest. So don't maybe too should... much, Edward. No, why? Well, I didn't. I didn't say what the guest was talking about. Uh, bear, in mind, bear in mind, it's now the what the date today for anyone listening is the twenty first, Thursday the twenty first. The conference is on Saturday the twenty third. We would not release another episode until Sunday the twenty fourth, anyway. So whatever happens, it's already been and gone. Even if this is the next episode, so, I think we should do the conference roundup Sunday night. Release that on Sunday because the you know the listeners will be wanting to know what we've learned. Um, and then yeah, and then we'll chuck these in somewhere else just to make them really out of sync, really awkward. Well, I'm going to f- throw in an issue here in that. So you you lot listening now, you'll already listen to the conference roundup then because that would have already happened. So <laughs> did you enjoy it? A pointless conversation to have at the end of the podcast. <laughs> so on that note, I'm going to say au revoir. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.